Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of introducing Dr. Gustav Gressel. Gustav is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He was formerly the Bureau of Security Policy at the Austrian Ministry of Defense. His education includes a PhD in military strategic studies at Srinsky Miklos National Defense University of Budapest, a master's degree in military leadership and political science at the University of Salzburg. Gustav, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope to talk to you today about Russia. This is a subject that you work with and something that uh, you have shown a lot of interest in and something I think that the world is beginning to unravel yet again and how to manage Russia 2.0, so to speak. And in light of that, I'd like to share a little anecdote with you before we start our interview today. And this has to do with a major incident that happened in late June, something that has uh, come very close, very near and dear here in Britain, uh, because Russia said that one of its warships fired a warning shots and a warplane dropped bombs to force a British destroyer out of an area near Crimea that Moscow claims as its territorial waters. Britain maintains it was exercising its right to international waters, and uh, it's a bit of a game of cat and mouse of uh, testing one's backyard, so to speak. In any case, just a day later, Russian warplanes repeatedly flew low over a Dutch Navy frigate and conducted mock attacks. A new wave of incidents was reported earlier in July, as the US and the Ukraine uh, led a NATO military drill in the Black Sea known as the Sea Breeze with more than 30 countries. Uh, so it looks like things are heating up once again in uh, the European seas. Um, but what I'm interested in knowing is what exactly does Russia want in the Black Sea and how dangerous can these games and muscle flaxing get? Yeah, well, that's easy and complicated at the same time because sort of the, the overall aim can be easily explained with defending Crimea. The problem is uh, once we, we start to understand what defense means in Russian terms, because it means something entirely different or, or almost the reverse than what it means in, sort of in the Western context, uh, we, we start to understand how, how dangerous and complicated this is. So um, Russia, Russia's military tradition and military thinking um, has, has not considered strategic defense as something viable. Uh, we can endlessly discuss why and if and how they came to this conclusion. But basically, it's it's something that you don't do. Uh, defending, in, in our sense, like sort of repelling enemy attacks, you do on the tactical level, on an operational level if you have to. But on a strategic level, you try to go out and destroy your enemy uh, or distract your enemy into other theaters uh, before the enemy attacks you. Um, Defensive power for, or defensive interest, hence in Russian defense policy, means to be able to, to compel uh, in advance uh, your neighbors or your possible adversaries into accepting Russia's interests. So it's not, not sort of having sort of a, a status where you're not attacked, but rather sort of where you are able to attack others uh, if necessary, uh, which is why Russia is sort of paranoid about a, the, the enlargement of defensive organizations, because of course they reduce uh, Russia's uh, ability to exercise this kind of coercive power towards others. And that's why it perceives this as an infringement of its own defense under quotation mark capabilities. Now the same is uh, true for the Black Sea. So that the prime interest is to force other countries, particularly Ukraine, but 
sort of also the rest of the world to accept Russia's uh, possession of Crimea and its control over Crimea. Uh, and in order to do so, you need leverage over these countries. Uh, so you try to blockade them, you try to infringe their, uh, their maritime maneuvers, you try to push out um, vessels of other navies that might support them, you want to diminish their ability to defend themselves in order to sort of push them into a situation where they are kind of compelled to accept um, Russia's, uh, Russia's possession of Crimea and for, for sort of the literal states then they're caught in a catch-22 situation. They can either really do that, like recognizing Crimea as Russian, then they have the problem that they have created a, pre um, a precedent like we have created in 2008 with Georgia, where we have de facto accept that Russia are taking some parts of Georgia and keeping them, uh, that Russia will be inclined to doing this next time wherever it thinks it's suited, and that your sort of objective security then with regards to your territorial rights and the integrity of the security order around you is severely compromised, or you live in a constant state of military um, threatening and bullying where Russia tries to threaten that upon you and you have to prepare yourself um, to, to counter that. And basically sort of the end result is the same in each case because otherwise you start to get paranoid about Russian invasion or you get sort of paranoid about Russian provocations and other maneuvers. Anyway, you're busy militarily. Uh, and yes, yeah, sort of to dissuade international powers entering the Black Sea and exercising uh, uh, their freedom of navigation rights, uh, Russia sort of tries to very aggressively uh, push these navies away from what it perceives as their territorial waters. And it's not just the Black Sea. They do the same in the high north. They do the same in the Baltic Sea. Uh, they started to do the same in the eastern Mediterranean close to the Syrian shores. Uh, and they're building up uh, their capabilities to do the same in Libya as well. So we, we, we actually might see these kind of nasty incidents quite uh, around Europe uh, for the time being. Um, then there is sort of a last, uh, but not not very unimportant layer around this. This is sort of the also the different understanding or practice in how to apply the international law of the sea. So uh, Russia, just like China, signed UNCLOS, uh, the UN Convention uh, of the Law of the Seas. Um, but uh, just like China, they have a, a really different way of interpreting it. Um, basically, to Russia. Literal seas are basically theirs, and they uh, sort of other other nations should sort of respect uh, Russia's extended claims, like not passing them with military vessels. Um, uh, also, when we come to the high north, this is sort of also on patrolling, sea rescue, etc. Has quite a variety of, of implications. Russia very uh, sort of. Uh, liberally interprets the rules uh, uh, expanding uh, e exclusive economic zones. Um, for example, in the Black Sea, Russia has conquered all Ukrainian uh, oil and gas extraction platforms off the Black Sea coast, not only those off of Crimea, basically it has conquered them up to the Romanian shore uh, and it's sort of aggressively protecting them. Uh, in the high north, they claim uh, undersea ridges as their continental shelf, etc. Uh, and like the Chinese, they try to push away other navies in order to, to sort of um, uh, underpin militarily their claims and their interpretation of international law. And the West 
most Western powers, the US, uh, the Europeans uh, do not recognize them, both in, in, in with regard to China, as well as with regard to Russia. And of course, they sent them as a symbol of dissent, their naval vessels to underscore, no, guys, uh, we have a different opinion on that. And we maintain our right to navigate these waters, even with military vessels, and of course, than with commercial vessels. And we do not bow to your restrictions. You unilaterally try to to put on, on the use of these waters. And that's basically a broader, glo more global phenomenon that we have a kind of growing dissent of what, what the high seas are and where you can communicate. One of the things that um, I was noticing while you, you gave me that answer was how it almost seems to me as though Russia's understanding of power uh, seems very much stuck in the 19th century. It's this all or nothing approach. and. Perhaps I'm mistaken, but it seems like other countries, including the UK, Germany, um, and others, have achieved much uh, over the last century by understanding and applying power differently, the so-called soft power approach. Um, I don't understand why Russia can't modernize its, its understanding and its application of power. And I think this is one question that I would very much like to keep in mind. As we as we continue the discussion uh, today, is why is Russia stuck, if you will, uh, in in interpreting power in in this way, and uh, with all the consequences that brings, not only for the rest of the world but for itself as well. And in light of that, I'd like to start by analysing the situation in Crimea and specifically how it relates to the foreign policy situation with Germany. Uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky met uh, outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel in Berlin uh, in what is likely to be their last uh, personal meeting. Since Russia's annexation of Crimea, Merkel has been a steadfast ally uh, for Ukraine. But many in Ukraine feel that Germany has not done enough over Russia. This is made worse by Kiev's upset over calling for yet another EU-Russia summit. What exactly can Germany do against a nuclear-armed Russia with a reinvigorated and mobile force that we know can be quickly deployed and does not lack initiative, does not lack sometimes moral concerns and understands power, as we've just discussed, uh, differently than we do. Uh, so does Europe understand that Russia views Crimea as a strategically vital piece of its territory and is willing to use force to attain it? Yes, uh, Europe understands that. Europe, of course, won't recognize it, but it, on the other hand, won't sort of seek to militarily roll that back. Now, for Germany, uh, the problem is that Germany has basically by coincidence being pushed into a situation that is that is probably above its weight or above the capabilities of the domestic political audience to handle it. Uh, if we go back to, to 2014 and the two Minsk agreements, so the first and the second one, um, the, the eruption of the, of the war in, in Ukraine, uh, Basically, what, what Merkel thought when, when she started to have this shuttle diplomacy uh, uh, in, in February 2014, uh, trying to halt uh, the, the Russian offences uh, that, that was going on around the Balceve and, and nobody yet knew where it would probably end. Uh, actually, her main goal was to uh, get Obama moving and have the US uh, talk to the Russians because they are 
sort of uh, not only perceived in Russian eyes as the main enemy, uh, they're also the other big nuclear power. And uh, and the problem was that was uh, that was difficult uh, for many reasons. So there was a, a quite heterogeneous domestic debate how to deal with this conflict in the US at the time, also within the Democratic Party at the time. Uh, Obama uh, was was not very keen to see Putin um, uh, and personally thought that Merkel was much better because she knew Russian and Putin knows German to to get along with him and to read him and to to play hard on him. Um, uh, also, the Ukraine portfolio was run by the then Vice President Biden, and the problem is if you then would. So if you insert the U.S. on the vice president level, then and in Russia, basically the only decision maker is Putin on these issues. Uh, you would give the Russian an excuse to send some somebody inferior uh, and disregard uh, all all that was said and written down in whatever negotiations to come, because you really need Putin and Putin's signature under whatever you're going to create. Uh, so. So Merkel took on board the French because they're also a nuclear power, and uh, sort of if you can't can't get Obama on board, you you have to take them, uh, and uh, and basically went to Minsk with 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 Hollande. They had sort of they had visited she had visited Washington before. Uh, everything the whole agenda and the red lines were of course cleared with the U.S. There was very intensive coordination with the with Washington on the subsequent uh, implementation negotiations and the Minsk group. So so the Americans were never as much out of the loop as some some claimed, but still sort of the the, the big uh, the big negotiating part was was Germany and was in the person of Mac. This this was her her thing then. Um, uh, of course, sort of this construct basically fell a bit apart on the on the Trump because uh, of of sort of Trump and Merkel not coming along. Trump adamantly hating Merkel and trying to sort of see also Germany as main economic enemy. Uh, there was initially, there was close coordination with, with sort of the national security advisor, uh, uh, both McMaster and, and, and Kelly uh, being, being more of a traditional Republican uh, figures yet that you could work with. However, that sort of cooperation, that practical cooperation basically always hit at that end once Trump had to make a decision and he never listened to advice and he hardly listened to facts and he he was not very willing to to go along with the uh, traditional Republican Ukraine and Russia policies. So he he personally frequently tried to torpedo whatever his his security staff has worked out. I mean, you can basically there are books written about all this stuff uh, right now, so so I'm not, not going to entertain you longer. But the problem was now that Germany is left in a place it was never designed to be, uh, and uh, Merkel will go, and they will have a chancellor who is not as familiar with Russia, who is, doesn't speak Russian, who uh, wasn't risen in the GDR, except for if you have a green chancellor. But as it polls are now, I think the slant. The, the chances are slim, um, and and that basically that the conflict overwhelms Germany's domestic understanding of international relations of power politics because since the Second World War, Germany has never been exposed to this kind of sort of grand political affairs, power politics and warfare as as it is now. 
uh, and uh, and you have you have you have very few politicians that really factually understand the conflict and the war and what's going on, uh, and even those who do understand it really try not to verbally articulate that they really understand the conflict because it would be unpopular in the rest of Germany. Uh, the the pop popular sentiments amongst the Germans is that they should be a kind of grand Switzerland that is neutral and in the middle of of a peaceful continent and makes chocolate and lives happily every after. Uh, so, so they're in an enormously complicated and uh, uh, situation. However, you know, by size and, and virtue, Germany can't basically for long extract itself. It can't be the kind of Switzerland that people want it to be. Uh, and, uh, and, and they have to catch up with reality. Of course, they, they won't become a nuclear power and they won't become very uh, adventurous in, in terms of military terms, but for military support measures, uh, common uh, preparations in the framework of NATO and then with partners to, to contain uh, Russian militarism, uh, they have to show they will have to show a greater effort. Otherwise, this Asian that we have seen in Georgia and in Ukraine uh, will advance and that's that's not not really in the German interests, uh, although they, they have no clue how to contain it by now. One thing that I'm interested as well in, in this economy is, of course, that it's not just Germany, US, Russia, but it's also Ukraine. And uh, their position is uh, quite lamentable, to say mm -hmm. the least. Uh, but I'm interested that the, the Ukraine president is, of course, have pursuing his own foreign policy agenda. What I'm left wondering is what, what role do they have to play and uh, whether they, they hope to accomplish much by doing these high-profile visits? And are they aware that they are unfortunately at the mercy of powers beyond them, so to speak? And I wonder if a new Bundestag will, will be able to offer any different solutions really for Ukraine or whether they will always be like much of the rest of Eastern Europe at the mercy of uh, whatever the West and uh, Russia decide to play it out. Well, that's the big fear of, of the Ukrainians to be kind of left over with a great power decision that they they can barely live with uh, and, and uh, have to accept it. Uh, so they're there. The Budapest memorandum that has made them giving up their nuclear weapons and much of the nuclear facilities uh, mantra now in, in Ukrainian policy. Why have we done that uh, for stupid guarantees? Nobody wants to live up. Um, now, of course, they have, uh, for example, compared to Georgia, of course, they are in a, in a better situation as they are bigger and they have more resources. They have a bigger defense industry. Uh, they did improve their armed forces significantly. They can now in Donbass at least contain the fighting. Of course, in theory, uh, escalation dominance, uh, not, not, not the least for the sake of nuclear weapons, but uh, practically, of course, Putin, for, for its own domestic reasons, doesn't want to enter war where he gets back casualties in the thousands. Uh, so, so hence, they have already on their own way uh, quite achieved uh, something. The problem is uh, the international situation for Ukraine is is not very is not very durable uh, they have signed a ceasefire that isn't uh, they can't walk away from the Minsk agreement first of all because Western sanctions especially on the Russian defense sector are bound to to the implementation of the Minsk agreement which Russia has no interest in implementing the second thing is the Minsk agreement as bad as it is it, it serves kind of a, a compromise in giving Russian impression that it has won the, the war, uh, but 
actually, if you look closely at the paper, not uh, giving giving Ukraine enough freedom to maneuver to uh, the, the terms Russia think it had posed on Ukraine. Hence, it gives Ukraine time to become better, more effective, reformed, stronger, economically diverse, etc. Of course, the problem is that there's still fighting, there's still a war, uh, there's still a major war effort, and there's still people dying, which is a domestic liability to any Ukrainian president. Um, Zelensky's uh, strategy of sitting down with Putin and kind of uh, making a gentleman's agreement uh, didn't work out. Uh, this was sort of Zelensky's illusion in the election campaign. His 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 perception of the of the war was Poroshenko screwed it, uh, and, and I'll be better than him, so I can sit down with Putin and make a better agreement than Poroshenko did, and then the whole thing is over. Of course, it didn't play out that well, uh, and and the Russians never never reacted to any of his uh, gestures and and attempts to to uh, freeze at least the war. Uh, so uh, the second try Zelensky does is involve the US, uh, try, to, try to keep uh, Crimea on the debate uh, internationally because he knows that Putin hates debating Crimea and wants to suppress that. And basically that the, the tactic is, well, if you do not want to be constructive about Donbass, so do you want to be constructive about Crimea do you like that better and if you you know if you hate that more well let's talk about Donbass for a moment uh, to kind of make a, a arrangement on that but it didn't work out the way he wanted uh, for now of course now we have sort of quasi elections uh, for the Duma and it's not to be expected uh, to come and the Anything significant might come out of Moscow before that, uh, but even then, basically, we are we are back to where we were on the sort of later Poroshenko that we're fighting small tit for tat uh, battles on on Minsk implementation, knowing that it's more about boxing in the eyes of public opinions. The Russians have basically no interest to freeze the war, and we have to kind of construct. Uh, negotiation outcomes to put the ball firmly into Russia's court and show our own domestic audience that it's their fault. Apart from that, the, the situation, of course, is, is uh, stable but not, com- not comfortable. Beyond Crimea, Eastern Europe was a battleground in World War I, World War II, the Cold War, the Yugoslav War, and now, of course, the, the conflict in, in Ukraine. It almost seems as if Russia's trajectory with these conflicts uh, regarding uh, Georgia, Crimea, etc., and now recently the conflicts in, in Belarus uh, politically have been happening, are following along its ex-USSR uh, sort of orbit of influence, if you will. So my question is that after Crimea, you know, looking forward to the next, to this decade and the, and the one beyond that, is Russia's trajectory predictable in the sense of it is going to create more of these conflicts to reacquire influence and or territory in Eastern Europe. And bearing in mind NATO's policy of accepting a lot of Eastern Europe into uh, the Article 5 NATO Treaty, has this been effective in delaying that ambition of Russia? Or are we due to actually see increased conflict because of this clash of uh, ambitions over uh, Eastern Europe? Yeah, so for the Russian aims, it's sort of restoring uh, preeminence over over Eastern Europe is uh, the goal now as it was back then. And we don't only can go back to uh, 
to the Soviet Union, if you look at Tsarist Empire basically gaining preeminence over the Slavic Balkan and dismantling the Habsburg Empire uh, was one of their main priorities. And if you see in the Russo-Japanese Wars, they they neglected the Asian theater uh, for the sake of the Europeans back then. And there are a lot of Westerners that try to suggest to the Russians that they do the same back now, but uh, this is uh, what Russia is and not what the West uh, wishes Russia to be. And it will put its priority on the expansion of influence and power in the Western theater above all. Um, in that case, yes, NATO was the double enlargement of both NATO and the European Union so far was the biggest, most successful countering to this trend. And uh, we, the, the Russians elite did not really accept, deeply accept the, the outcome of 1990, 1991. Uh, they, there was an in struggle within Russia and, and there were some fractions that said, well, before sort of get, becoming imperial again, we need to concentrate on domestic reforms and rebuilding the economy after this communist experiment went horribly wrong. And thereafter, we're going to sort of care for world politics again. But then it was the mood that sort of, okay, we're going to give up. You know, Russia is fine without an empire and we'll live without an empire and will not be a sort of dominating power in Europe because we have other problems and we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't do that again. This was never the mood and this was never the discussion. So, yes, once sort of power was restored and, and the means were there, uh, Russia tried to actively reverse uh, the results of 1990, 1991. And, uh, but in doing so, they have been closely calculating their odds. Uh, I mean, Georgia was not something that, that was horrendously daring. Um, Ukraine as well, if you see how much they had subverted the Ukraine defense apparatus, the SBU, the political system, how much spies they had, they could read uh, Ukraine's governmental and military uh, signals. So they were, they were playing with open or against the player with open cards. Um, it was not horribly daring. Um, so once Russia gets confronted with, with higher risks, um, although it doesn't like the results or that that has been put in front of him by by enlargement of of uh, NATO and the European Union uh, it it will uh, be cautious to fight them um, it will rather than fight them by sponsoring people like Orban or trying to uh, trying to um, create dissent within the EU and trying to sort of uh, support forces that weaken such uh, such uh, organizations from within like Donald Trump for example uh, but but uh, it will it will have some caution applying military force however that doesn't mean that you should be complacent and lazy um, there are chances first of all that that Russia misreads uh, American intentions and resolve uh, it it may misread uh, in a European crisis because of its own political correctness. Uh, for example, both Brexit and refugee crisis have been taken on by the Russian elites as kind of ray signals. Now the European Union will disintegrate and, and NATO with Trump soon thereafter, and then we can go at them again. And basically this hadn't paid off. Now, um, 
uh, we don't know how they will misread future crises and whether sort of and how and when uh, they will see signals that actually now it's time that we we can without much risk uh, go at one of the minor members of NATO or try to chip something away. Uh, so so we are not, we are not on the safe side of this unless there is a meaningful and credible deterrent uh, in Europe. Um, but this is, I mean, basically, if, if 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 governments are seriously, this is achievable. So it's not an unsolvable problem. Well, th- this is an interesting point, Gustav, because in a sense, you can make the argument that Western Europe never really suffered the this the same under the Cold War that uh, immediately preceded uh, World War Two in in Eastern Europe and and of course in half of Germany. Uh, Western Europe can count its blessings that the Cold War never turned hot. There were famous uh, scenes of children hiding under desks in America. Other than panic, it never really boiled over, so to speak. And with a stunning amount of countries that are self-declared neutral countries, they do not pay the minimum requirements into military spending as, as required by NATO, which, of course, President Trump made a big scene over a big huff and puff, but I don't see that having changed. And so if we were under a different timeline in which Russia decided to do exactly as you have, uh, as you have pointed out, they say, oh, we're going to go after a smaller NATO member state that is not paying their minimum requirements, that is depending on Article 5 for its existence, even though it declares itself to be neutral. What chances there of the rest of uh, the smaller states of NATO collaborating together to stop uh, Russian maneuvers? Well, of course, it will. It will very much depend on the circumstances. Uh, so, so the problem is here. You have you have basically uh, a lot of generalizations that are misleading when you compare NATO's forces and and Russia's. Uh, in a crisis, it will depend on how quickly each side can deploy forces to a certain amount of theater uh, to a certain theater and and be effective there. Uh, everybody understands that uh, the West, uh, in a very long-term conflict, uh, has the upper end. And that means American forces to be transferred to the, to the European continent. Uh, however, in, in a crisis uh, that, that develops on its own dynamic, uh, speed and determination is often the decisive thing. And Russia can basically, Russia can create results before much of the European and American defense apparatuses can react. And that's that's inherent to any collective defense system that rests on offshore reserves. Um, uh, and, and this is sort of the, the, the particularly dangerous uh, thing. So if you look very close to, uh, to the eastern flank, uh, and here, for example, vulnerable spots, before we, we talked a lot about vulnerable spots in the Baltic, there is a famous RAND cooperation simulation game that from a poorly military perspective actually is quite well done. And yes, this is the problem, uh, that, that sort of the initial offensive operation would, would, uh, would be favorable to, to Russia, uh, given air superiority, etc., However, if I were a Russian military thinker, I actually would see uh, the Black Sea as uh, as the weakest spot. Uh, for example, uh, Bulgaria, um, be- because I have greater leverage on domestic issues there, and I can steer up a kind of gray zone uh, conflict, or there's a greater potential that I might be in a position where I can steer up a gray zone policy that makes NATO hesitant how to react to this. Uh, if you see how right-wing militias rose in the um, 
during the refugee crisis, um, I mean, such militias are militarily completely uh, worthless, but uh, propaganda-wise to have this kind of tools on the ground, uh, the Jiru trained a lot of them uh, to, to stage some kind of revolution, to make people guessing what is actually going on. Is this a domestic strife or is somebody helping uh, with a hand from behind? This is, this is the thing that is, uh, to my point of view, um, actually much more dangerous than the, the sudden Swalki gap. Uh, incident. But even then, we, we, we witnessed Zapata exercises. Uh, Russia is very paranoid about Belarus uh, uh, cementing its military position there. Um, uh, we, we should never take it for granted that things will be stable in there. And, and if, if they escalate, um, the problem is that uh, NATO will have a hard time to bring uh, reinforcements very quickly to the theater uh, in a sufficient amount of, of numbers and firepower and strength uh, to, to contain any Russian advance uh, at a stage where it hasn't produced strategic results. You can only, for the sake of avoiding nuclear war, sit down at another Minsk uh, round or again, Geneva round or what, wherever you want to sit down to, to kind of confirm the status quo, which is the most dangerous outcome because this is sort of the, the, the thing that happened basically in Georgia, and this is the thing that makes Russia repeat the exercise because it was successful. Um, and that will have to rest a lot on local capabilities. Uh, this will have to rest on the Americans more reinforcing uh, European armies with capabilities that they don't have, but who are which are quickly deployable, especially electronic warfare, intelligence, air warfare, uh, uh, because sort of the big divisions will 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 need their time across the Atlantic, uh, and that needs from the European side an effort first of all to be interoperable with with whatever sort of small assets the US can put to the ground quickly, then interoperably between each other, uh, between Polish and German forces, for example, and then to have a sufficient amount of readiness on their own to, to, to master uh, a counter effort. Uh, if you look, the, the problem is now they're, they're classified. You, you don't get any new data on readiness of land forces that are, are more recent than 2014. Uh, but if you look at the 2014 numbers, you had a lot of countries that have a readiness of their ground forces that hovers between 2 and 5%. Uh, and that's a scandal. Uh, in, in the Georgian war, basically, was over in five days. Um, uh, the invasion of Crimea was done in seven days, from the order to to execution. Uh, you do not have the time to bring forces to the sort of amount of, of readiness uh, uh, that we were used during the Cold War when the Soviet army relied on mobilization and we could trace the signals for this preparation and we had a lot of time to prepare that we, we, we can of course pick up russian signals and we can see why the satellite wants the russians sort of uh, engage in larger logistical operations that are needed to support a ground offensive uh, but uh, but the time frame for this kind of pre-warning is way shorter than we were used to during the cold war uh, and here, without a, a decent amount of Bundeswehr and without a decent amount of local forces, and here the Baltics are actually a good example because they did that in, with, within their means as very small states within a sort of a, in a quite fantastic way. But there are other states um, who are definitely not doing this. 
uh, we will have problems, especially problems making the defense pledge credible, which is if you want to deter, you need to be credible in the first place. And that, that, that is sort of the, the big gap. And that concludes the first part of my conversation with Dr. Gustav Gressel on the subject of the European Union strategies and policies of containing Russia's provocations in Eastern Europe. Stay tuned for the second part where we elaborate more on this issue. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.